1: From Night Sky Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Let's go back, way back in time, to talk about the world's first movie monsters, the world's first actual monsters. Let's talk about dinosaurs. Dinosaur movies go back almost as far as movies themselves. Back in 1914, a popular cartoonist and animator named Windsor McKay created a five-minute cartoon starring Gertie the Dinosaur. Yes, it was a cartoon, but its popularity cannot be overstated. That same year, D.W. Griffith produced a movie that incorporated two kinds of movie monsters that would dominate the field for decades in a film called Brute Force. First, there was an alligator with fake bat wings and a crest applied, but it also featured the very first appearance of a stop-motion dinosaur, the Ceratosaurus. But what really kicked things off was in 1925, when Willis O'Brien created stop-motion animated clay dinosaurs in the first screen adaptation of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's prehistoric creature feature, The Lost World. O'Brien also created the groundbreaking stop-motion effects in 1933's King Kong and, in the next decade, Mighty Joe Young, where he was assisted by his brilliant young protege, Ray Harryhausen, who went on to be the all-time king of stop-motion monsters. Dinosaurs became a staple of movie magic, the best of which were animated frame by frame, and the worst by gluing fins and the like onto unsuspecting lizards blown up to king size on the screen. There were dozens of other such creature features that were made magical by animators like Jim Danforth and Doug Beswick and Dennis Muren during the dino boom of the 1970s. And then it all changed when Steven Spielberg and his genius CGI team brought Jurassic Park to life and there was no looking back. Digitally created dinosaurs pretty much became the standard, though early attempts to cash in on Steven's movie, like the Roger Corman-produced Carnosaur, may do with a guy in a suit, much like the Japanese kaiju movies. Every kid loves dinosaurs, and movies with prehistoric monsters have filled theaters since way back when Gertie walked the cartoon Earth. There is no dearth of dinosaur stories to tell, the latest being 65, set on the planet Earth some 65 million years ago. Writer-directors Scott Beck and Brian Woods have come up with a new twist in Tales of Space and Time, and they are here to tell us all about living in a prehistoric cinematic world. This episode is sponsored by Paramount Home Entertainment. From director Yoko Okumura comes Unseen. In the film, two women form an unlikely connection when a depressed gas station clerk, Sam, played by Jolene Purdy, receives a call from Emily Midori Francis, a nearly blind woman who is running from her murderous ex in the woods. Emily must survive the ordeal with Sam being her eyes from afar using a video call. Unseen is available now via digital and on demand. Guys, welcome back. It's not many who return for an encore performance, and it's so exciting to have you here.
2: We've been looking forward to this for, I think, the last four years since, <laughs> since we were last year in 2019. So yes, thank you for having us
1: back. Well, it's great to have you back, especially under these circumstances, but not everybody knows your background. Not everybody heard the first show, but you guys have been paired since the University of Iowa.
2: Yeah, we. I mean, Brian and I even go back further. Like We were 11 years old when we first met um, in, in Beddorf, Iowa, and we were... We were making um, stop motion videos. I mean, very much like your your incredible introduction. You know, the the stop motion was our first experimentation with um, with videos and with dinosaurs.
1: That's cool. Yeah. I did it in eight millimeter when I was a kid. Stop <laughs> motion, yeah. disappearing yeah. things and moving things around. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was you know it. We were kids when Jurassic Park came out, and so to a certain degree, that was one of our first early introductions to the world of dinosaurs and we were And there that's
1: 30 years ago, 30 can years you ago. believe it? June 11, Cannot 1993.
2: It. Yeah. My I my mom actually um was taking me to the movie theater and uh Arnold Schwarzenegger's Last Action Hero was coming out right around then and that was the only movie I wanted to see and she was like no we're going to see something called Jurassic Park. I'm like what does the word Jurassic mean? Yeah. I had no understanding of what I was about to step into, and it was quite a quite a world she introduced me to.
1: Well, it certainly changed the course of your lives eventually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, That's tell it. me about those little movies and videos and stop motion and the playing around that you did.
3: Yeah, it was always just a fun hobby that we had, and and making movies in growing up in in the Midwest and making movies in middle school and high school. We advanced to feature length films that were absolutely horrible, but we were learning how to do it all. We were learning how to write and direct and shoot the movies and hold the boom mic. And, um, and even we would have, uh, local casting calls and, and hold auditions and, and we'd be these, um, you know, 15 year old twerps sitting behind a a big desk auditioning seasoned actors in the local community. And, And in retrospect, it was kind of absurd, but to us, it, it, it seemed, uh, It seemed normal. But it was
1: the revenge of the nerds. Yes, exactly. (laughs) In real life, in real time. Yeah,
3: and so, you know, it's just movies are just something we've always adored and loved and, and have pursued it passionately ever since we kind of our self-taught filmmakers. We didn't really go to film school. Um, but, um, but not I mean, a lot of film school in Idaho. I'm no, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a state that appreciates writers for sure. But, um, but you know, it's, it's, um, that's we, right. We, Famous, uh, writers conferences of, and, and yeah, yeah. yeah lots the, of
2: the, like Iowa writers workshop, they, they fostered some of the, like the best authors and screenwriters that we've ever read. And, um, and it there's there's a history of literature, but I think like for us, it was between reading books as kids, writing plays, um, making these movies, but then also coming of age when uh, DVDs really were having commentaries and special features and being able to see the the uh, dirtiness at which filmmaking really came together versus the glossy you know EPKs that just show you know talking heads being like oh so and so is excellent to work with like right you right. see the you see the stress <laughs> on the director's face in the raw you know fly on the wall making ofs which yeah which just i used up. to make so. yes absolutely i mean
1: <laughs> they were instrumental so. was being able to do that on gremlins and goonies and exactly. escape from new york and all yes. that stuff oh, that wow. was my film school yes was was learning from that and then know, later on amazing stories but you had great success in uh uh, at university with Mm -hmm. your your film uh, you won a competition with mtv and mtvu yeah
2: Yeah. at 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 the time it felt like finally eureka the doors had opened in this this development deal that we received with mtv films felt like that's the big step and i think we won that when we were about 20 21 years old and it um to to be honest it was a bit of a expectation that totally undercut itself and that we thought oh we've got this contract with this movie studio and the contract literally got negotiated for what like four years was it four years it was something absurd seriously
3: (laughs) apparently exactly (laughs) and i think at the end of four years they were kind of like here's a paltry like five grand you can uh spare us the development you can spare us the pitch that you want to give us we don't really need your movie we'll just give you uh you know this tiny sum of money and Uh. and we were like all right that was depressing but let's take that money and go shoot a pilot and we're going to put mtv's if we if you guys give us permission we'll put mtv's logo on it and we'll treat it like a professional like you guys paid us to go make a pilot and that's how we we treated it and so we were able to go make this um 20-minute pilot presentation called spread that's never seen the light of day but it was it became a calling card for us as directors really really early in our career so we kind of i don't think we got to this part i don't think think we did we we haven't don't really talk about it much but it was um, it was an exercise in patience um, and the disappointment that um, the business can bring but also in trying to take, um, I guess, the lemons and turn it into lemonade in some weird way. So, it, it, yeah, we, we made this pilot and it's... Uh, I wouldn't say it got our foot in the door, but it got us access. People would watch it and and take us a little bit more seriously because we had the MTV brand behind it. Right. You had
1: something to show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And then you finally got to do a feature that was released by Lionsgate. Right. So that was Nightlight. Tell me how that came together. Was that something that you cobbled together on your own or it was financed by Lionsgate or how was that done?
2: It was actually concurrently with the MTV project. While we were directing that, we were writing the screenplay for Nightlight, which um, was in the day of found footage filmmaking and, and our concept was can we do a found footage movie that has a bit more um, finesse? Like, that was the ambition, at least. Like, right. found
3: footage movies are always... Um, we love them. They're they're amazing. But they're always, like, they're inherently the ugliest movies right. in cinema history. Until
1: paranormal activity. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. And, and so we thought... We had this weird concept of, what if we shot an entire movie from the point of view of a flashlight that this girl brings into a haunted forest? That oh, wow. was the conceit. And, and in our minds, and this sounds silly uh, in retrospect but at the time we were like what if you know if stanley kubrick directed a a found footage movie. What would it look like? It would have a little bit more style, and the aesthetic would be um, a little bit more elevated. And and um, this is crazy talk, but like that was kind of the ambition in we the also, moment. We also
2: we have the ambition that it all takes place as a oneer, which made oh, our oh. life a living hell in oh, production because we always had to figure out okay, this is an eight minute take, and then you had to do that you know ten more times, and you're and just you like have to That's hide the, the whole, cut, hide the you cut, have to hide the yeah. cut. And there were times um, I remember in the edit process because Brian and I were also the editors on that we were stringing all the different pieces along. It was probably consisted of um, like 18 different shots, let's just say. And we got to like the 16th cut and it did not stitch together. And we were like editing at like three in the morning. We had lost our minds and we just started laughing with hysteria (laughs) because we had worked for months and months to make this work. And we were like, we just screwed this up. (laughs) And it was, (laughs) We, we ended up like, we got it to work, but then we also had this version that's all a one that's like two hours long. And we were like, the audience's patience will not withstand yeah. the ambitions at which we tried shooting this. And so the final product is not a one-er, but the whole process was having these lofty ambitions and then having to be confronted with the reality of what the story needs, <laughs> which is filmmaking in, in a
3: nutshell.
1: So, yeah, exactly. You know, well, what must it have been like for you to watch
3: 1917? Uh, jealousy. <laughs> but it was, beautiful, you know, it was beautiful. We loved it. And it's it was, a great It's a great movie. And,
1: you know, obviously there's cuts hidden all over it, but yeah. flawlessly so. It's oh so brilliant. Gosh. The
2: blocking yeah. is incredible. The storytelling of keeping the camera alive, but not feeling like you're restricting the actor's performance is just amazing. And then having these different set pieces of, like the set piece where um, the flares are going up and the, the entire world is blanketed in darkness when they disappear just the incredible atmosphere that you're able to paint and withstand um, the, the audience's uh, ability to watch and want to go on that journey is just top-level top, top level filmmaking. Yeah,
1: around. and emotionally engaging yeah. as well. A yeah, lot absolutely. of times when you have a concept so high, you lose track of grounding it in your, your gut and heart and soul. It's yeah. so absolutely. true. It's, yeah. a,
3: it's, a, it's a remarkable piece of screenwriting, too. It gets talked a lot about as um, this... Uh, impressive directing exercise but to sustain a story and and get you invested in characters in real time is very challenging and i thought they they did a terrific job
1: even if it had been done traditionally it would still be a great movie and the fact that they Mm -hmm. did it even more powerfully as one unbroken sequence is just amazing Amazing. yeah Yeah. absolutely so 2016 was a big year for you this Mm -hmm. was the year you you made the deal To write A Quiet Place. Yes. So tell me how that kind of changed the nature of Mm. what your career trajectory was.
3: Yeah, it was a, an interesting point in our career because we had been really frustrated with a lot of different jobs and, and ch- chasing assignments and our agents leaning us down blind alleys like, you got to chase this. It's going to be the next hot thing. And then we'd spend four months working on a pitch and just for it to turn into nothing. And so we got frustrated and we wrote A Quiet Place out of that frustration and out of that um, just desire to really just focus on something that we thought was cool and and tried to stop listening to what other people were excited about and and um it was a thrilling process and um and it was i don't know it took us to strange places It uh immediately the script got a warm reception from our agents it went into paramount Um, paramount made a really aggressive offer to, to to make the movie And the intention was for us to direct. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately the first actor we went to Mr. John Krasinski um, or fortunately rather, I guess I should say (laughs) um, wanted to direct the movie. And not only did he want to direct the movie, he shared the script with his wife. The second it came into him and um, she wanted to co-star in it. And it was this amazing moment. It was almost incomprehensible. We got whiplash because we were like, I don't understand. Like, John and Emily, are they friends? Are they were they just <laughs> hanging out when he read the script? We didn't realize that they were married at the time and, and and we really had to like think like, Oh my gosh, are we gonna let our baby go? And and um and um we just couldn't deny how perfect they were for those roles. And yeah. and, and certainly John um, you know, uh, as as an as an actor in the business who has worked with many great directors, including Sam Mendes, who we were just talking about with 1917, yeah. we just had um, had a gut feeling that he uh, probably learned a thing or two um, after all those years. But
1: what an ama- who would have guessed he would be such a terrific genre director? Yeah, total. Surprise. That's the thing that surprised me. I mean, he directed comedy before, mm-hmm. yes, and had acted comedy and drama and all, but he understood our genre you know google gobble gobble one of us is we are often repeated phrase here (laughs) and and it became such a a smash but it was before it went into production that you guys started making haunt right Yeah. yeah
2: we we were writing a quiet place and haunt Concurrently, and they they both were scratching different itches that we had of yeah. you know doing um, you know a, a family horror uh, genre, but then just doing like a straight up like fun Halloween slasher, and so Haunt was going into production and basically was shooting alongside a Quiet Place back in uh, this would have been like fall of twenty seventeen. And it was fun, like Haunt was, was kind of that throwback slasher film that uh, we actually got to film over the course of Halloween in October 2017. Wow. And so the, the spirit at which I think all our collaborators um, went into that movie with felt like, in, in retrospect, it created one of the, the best filmmaking atmospheres that we've ever had because it really felt like a camaraderie in the wake of, uh, you know, Halloween, Halloween Seasons.
1: Yeah, I I actually was shooting on Halloween an episode, a Halloween episode of Once Upon a Time. That same Halloween, twenty seventeen. Did
2: anyone dress up for Halloween? Yeah, (laughs) and you know,
1: we had a set in a bar, uh, and we had the Sanderson sisters in costume in that bar. There, it was. It took place on Halloween, and we were shooting on Halloween. That's amazing.
3: Did you dress up as anything on Halloween? No, no, I I was in the background. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but. Tell me, so um, Haunt was very grounded, Mm -hmm. practical effects, Mm -hmm. uh, homemade movie making in the independent sense, very much in the 80s style. Yes. And so tell me about that experience, because the evolution of the tools of filmmaking are in a maelstrom at that time, Mm -hmm. and you're in this what could be seen as an old fashioned or let's say classic Mm -hmm. filmmaking style where everything you see is on the set in front of you and is handmade and you interact, the actors interact with these things.
2: Absolutely. There's, there's nothing um, better than having practical, not just, you know, from a, from a cinephile and fan (laughs) audience standpoint, but from a filmmaking standpoint. So the actors actually have something tangible that they can react to. Um, we certainly know especially with with 65 and some of the effects there and some some are practical some are cg that if you don't have something right in front of you it takes a lot of imagination as a director but certainly as an actor to feel the tangible and palpable fear with haunt um you know we we just wanted to make sure everything in this haunted house was operating as if it were a real haunted house and anytime there was, you know, a moment of violence or whatnot. There always had to be something practical that we we all could react to, so that the reality and the authenticity was the first and foremost uh, tone that we were really hitting there.
1: So, how did uh, Eli Roth get involved in his presentation of the film?
3: Yeah, he he read the script. Somebody slipped him the script, and um, we got a phone call from our producers, Broken Road, and said Eli read the script. He loved it. And our minds instantly went to, oh, oh, he's going to want to direct this just like John <laughs> oh, wanted to no. direct the clip. Like <laughs> our mind went to, uh-oh, like I don't know if we're going to be directing any movies this year. And um, instead he was like, I would really love to kind of mentor this project. I really responded to it. Um, he... Um, had been trying to crack a haunted house, uh, slasher film for a long time. And he felt like the haunt was the answer to those questions that he had about, could you do a movie where people innocently go into a haunted house and the, the horror that happens inside of there, uh, turns out to be real. And, and Eli was just really, really supportive, a a great mentor working with other filmmakers is so, uh, it's, uh, what's the word? Therapeutic, I guess is the word I would use because they've been through it all. They've seen everything. Um, you know, working with Sam Raimi on 65, it was the same way. It's, um, there's a mentorship element, but there's also just, um, as as a filmmaker's, I don't know how you feel Mick, but we're always, uh, there's just a lot of anxiety that comes with the job. There's a lot of money on the line. Um, there's a lot of responsibility and then there's your own artistic uh hopes and dreams that you're trying to do your best job and and constantly failing and and, and um to have a, a mentor like an Eli Roth or a Sam Raimi um, watching over you and and telling you it's going to be okay, and here's what I did in this situation when when um, it happened to me or or or, or whatever the case is is just really um it's really nice.
1: Well, it's the situation I had doing producing Masters of Horror, mm-hmm. working with John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and Dario Argento. I learned so much from all of them, and my contribution was to be able to step aside and protect them from other people interfering with people whose vision is a lot better than anybody else's that would have had notes.
3: That's so fascinating. It's, we're in a, the businesses is, is, it always makes us scratch our head because, um, there's so many terrific filmmakers, uh, that we admire throughout the years, but they're stuck in a business that has a hierarchy of, um, whether it's the financier or the studio that um, is always trying to kind of nudge the filmmaker one way or the other. And that usually is business related. It's usually about um, money. And, and so any time um, in your situation with Masters of Horror where like, you can empower those directors to do their best work unencumbered by either creative notes that don't make sense or just aren't coming from the right place, it's beautiful as fans to be able to watch that.
1: Well, it, it worked so well to see these guys work at the top of their powers mm-hmm. after having their metaphorical balls cut off. Yes, totally. you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But let's go back to the idea of platforming your career, you know, a quiet place sold for a lot of money for to make a big movie, and it was your hopeful entry into mm-hmm. being complete filmmakers because all your collaborative years you've been writing and directing together. Right. But here's Quiet Place was such a big success that that had to have opened the door for you to be able to be studio writers and directors.
2: Right, yeah, it, it, it was surprising. I think opening weekend with A Quiet Place, so this would have been like April 2018, we had zero expectations of how the movie was gonna be received, you know, critically from the audience, financially and we had a bit of whiplash to be honest just because i think our our nature and um in in life is to always expect the worst yeah and it's not a bad no no, it's it's a healthy point of view
3: especially (laughs) for the film business because usually the worst is what happens yeah
1: (laughs) you do your best and expect the worst (laughs) absolutely
3: and so we we went into that
2: opening weekend having the worst expectations, and and our, our hair was kind of blown back by by the fact that the the audiences embraced it as much as they did.
1: And the critics as the well. The critics, critics as well, yeah. which
2: is sometimes a really rare, rare uh, alchemy to, to, to hit. But um, they Paramount was instantly announcing the sequel to A Quiet Place before anybody involved outside of the studio, including John and Emily, I'm sure, had a chance to understand what this meant. Um, And Brian and I, meanwhile, we had been working on a few different ideas in the background. And this this dinosaur movie idea, 65, was something that was at the top of our list, but we never knew when the right opportunity would present itself, if ever, to get the resources to make it. And if the success of A Quiet Place taught us anything, it's that amidst a landscape where there's a lot of remakes and IP-based material and sequels, which we love... But we also want to see the opportunity for films not based on anything to also have their, their chance at, at the cinema. And so it felt like the right time to try and make 65. The caveat was we were like, do we go pitch this directly to a studio and try to get like paid to write this, or do we incubate the script by ourselves, just yeah. write it on spec, which is ultimately the decision we made because we – we wanted to figure out the story and 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 have our own little system that we used on a quiet place to write it inside a bubble and really do without the it, best
3: being version. poisoned by yeah. executive input and it's just exactly. so much more fun. I'm curious if you have a reaction to that, Mick in your own career. But like we love to just, we love the fun of writing, and yeah. it's, sometimes it's not as fun if, you, if, a, if you're if if you working with a studio that has expectations. Like, we heard a pitch. we They think they know what it is, and then they read the script, and, and sometimes they're just like, well, this isn't what we were picturing, and then you go through this kind of notes process. The fun of writing something on spec is it's just whatever you want to do.
1: Yeah, almost everything I do, I do on spec. Oh, wonderful. Uh, or it'll be in collaboration, like Collab Barker or Stephen King or somebody like that, mm-hmm. but you know and at this point in my career if it doesn't sell it doesn't sell. Yes. I've written another script that I can be proud of whether it becomes a financial success or not but then it's on to the next one and maybe yeah. that will sell and maybe it won't but it's not wasted time not because wasted you're time. always getting better. You're always
3: yeah. learning. I we totally it's and, that rings so true you're always learning and and yeah, I'm... I'm curious. Like, I'm curious if this has
2: happened to you also, because we've we've written scripts. Like, we were doing um, our again all on spec, like writing a, a, a revisionist tale of the Pied Piper, and mm. that story went nowhere. But there were character elements that we ended up. Um, using in a quiet place and even in in 65 like there's there's set pieces and such that we were using in other discarded screenplays have you ever piggybacked off of that Uh,
1: there have been pieces that I've taken out from you know uh, the original version of the fly Two was going to be something very different and it was going to involve uh, the anti-abortion movement and all of this and I ended up taking elements from that into another spec thing that I'm still working on and oh that's not have a future but yeah yeah, and and fly too was way back in you know 19 wow what yeah 89 89 Yeah, yeah 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 so written before that yeah but yeah ideas are good ideas and if you're working on something and you've had that thought before and it fits into that peg you know the peg fits into the groove it's it's exciting yeah and making it work that way so as a, as a team, how do you work? Do you sit together and like this podcast studio is my writing studio? Yes. As well. mm-hmm. This yeah. is my office. It's, this is where I do all of my writing. Yeah. Um, but I write by myself almost all the time. Yeah. So what is the process of a writing directing
3: mm-hmm. duo? when you're in the creation stage so we we like to brainstorm together we like to get in a room together throw ideas out challenge each other um pitch get excited about things sometimes we'll be working on a different project and we're just in the room together and we'll be like oh yeah and by the way on 65 like uh we should probably do like, if we're going to do a raptor, we should probably do a small, right. You know, we might just pitch stuff in the room, but when we write um, it is a very private process. Um, we, we are never in the same room together. Ah. Uh, we, we separate and and we go into our respective offices and, and bang out pages. And I think, part so do of you the,
1: say like, I'm going to do this scene, exactly, you do that scene. Exactly.
3: So we'll kind of usually, as far as like outlining, we'll kind of have a, decent idea of the first act we'll kind of have talked through it enough times that we know the beats of the first act and then we'll have a very fuzzy idea of the second act and we'll only have a vague idea of the ending we think it kind of ends like this but we're not really sure that's about as much preparation as we like to do so that then scott or myself can go all right i'll take the first 10 pages and we go off and we lock ourselves in a room when we write and and i think it's in part one, because I think if we were in the room together, we'd be kind of bit joking and laughing too <laughs> much, I mean, having too much fun, totally drag. distract yeah, each yeah. other. But also too, I think, when our writing is firing at its at its best, it's it very personal, and you're kind of you're almost revealing something private about yourself, and it helps to just be in a very kind of safe and closed space. And then and then once we have those pages, we sheepishly hand it to the other person and yeah. and go, please don't murder me. This is what I'm taking, <laughs> and and we get feedback, and then we challenge each other and and and, and try how to make can you trust
1: any more anybody more than you trust? Yeah, th- since you've known each other since you were 11 years old.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there. I, I would say there's times where I really believe in something that I've written, which is which is rare because there's yeah. always like that that imposter syndrome. But <laughs> I'll believe in it, and then I'll send it to Brian, and then he has a conviction that no, we should we should do it this opposite way. And I'm like, I will trust you on this yeah. because I, I kind of require that 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 feedback and i don't even know how i could write by myself to be honest
3: so it's
1: point, not so. there's not a battle going on usually no. if you're at opposite ends of a decision one of you will lie on your back yeah usually yeah. we'll
3: if we're on usually if we're on a different page we'll convince each other to switch sides and then we'll be <laughs> on the other side of the spectrum and we're like oh no yeah. now what <laughs> um but it, it really helps like um we're great re- like we love reading screenplays we we used to go to the bookstores and buy scripts off the shelves wow. we still do actually i still go to these bookstores French, yeah, yeah. i yeah. love going to the last bookstore downtown oh, and yeah. seeing like what screenplays do they have today that i can pick up and um we're lovers of the form of 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 the screenplay form but i can genuinely say like scott's one of my favorite writers so wow. When we're handing pages back and forth, it's thrilling. I'm excited to mm-hmm. see what he's come up with and I'm excited to try to challenge him and push it a little further. It, it
2: kind of allows us to be each other's audience too. And and therefore, like even though we know the outline and the story beats, there's there's everything that you have to fill in the gaps between dialogue and a bit of specific action and such that we get to really react to. And and like Brian's saying, it's usually a, a really enjoyable process and and inspires, you know, if he's delivering pages all of a sudden I'm inspired by a brand new idea that none of us had talked about yet.
1: Well what all of us agree on is we really enjoy the process of writing and a yep. lot of writers don't. Yes. <laughs> Most yeah. of them like having written, totally. but the process yeah. itself is like surgery. Have We're you about- have
3: you always liked writing because for us it it was harder and more painful earlier and the older we get the more we're starting to enjoy it and i don't know if that's a normal thing or have you always enjoyed the process i always
1: i i started seriously writing at 12 right yeah and it was the most fun thing in the world for me and i've always felt that way but i didn't have commercial success i didn't make a living as a screenwriter until i was 33 so it was wow. a relatively mm. late start yeah. um but it was out of the joy of it that that it happened and the first guy to hire me as we've talked about before is steven spielberg and so yeah he is so encouraging to writers and creators that i, I could not have had a more encouraging mentor who He taught me so much more than he knows he taught me. And, you know, I appreciate so much the limbs that he didn't realize he was going out on and allowing me to do, you know, one of the things he told me, and this was more as a director than as a writer, was... Do something you'd be afraid of being fired for. Do something wow. inventive that you'd be afraid of being fired oh, for that's doing. Awesome. Because yeah. I promise you, I'm not going to fire you. Oh, what oh, a great wow. And that freedom, that, yeah. that noose was yeah. thrown aside. Wow. Yeah. You know? And just that kind of encouragement. And, and the process of writing has always been a fun one for me. And one that I enjoy doing to the point where, you know, you talk about doing your 10 pages when I'm clicking 10 pages is a normal day. Yep. Yep. And, yep. and I love that process yeah. and I've co-written and I've done it happily with a few people, but I find myself free as, not trying to talk somebody into my point
3: sure. of view. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah, no, I believe it. Like everybody has their own system and, um, and and we love that idea of like that I'm gonna ingrain that in my head, the idea of like doing something that you would risk getting fired for. I feel like that's that's the most exciting place to be as a filmmaker. And I, I remember um one of our first critical reviews of one of the films that we screened for a college class when we were like sixteen or seventeen years old, uh, this this critique was like Beck and Woods are aspiring to mediocrity, and that was <laughs> that was such a terrifying sentence that I read. Where I'm like, I never want us to aspire to medi- mediocrity because my favorite filmmakers their their films. If you you know do them uh, injustice, but still look at the Rotten Tomatoes score. Like usually my favorite films are somewhere between forty to like sixty percent, and I'm like <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the sweet spot where you yeah. love it or you hate it, and it's usually because it's defying an expectation. And it's doing something bold because
1: of Right. That, so. and, and the most memorable films are the ones that aren't part of a franchise. Yes. You know, yeah. you guys notably were not a part of A Quiet Place too. Right. Yeah. And yeah. you were going your own route, writing your own spec yeah. stuff. Let's talk about dinosaurs. We can mm-hmm. make the transition to today, <laughs> okay, sure. to today now, but I, I'm assuming it will take you back to your childhood. Mm-hmm. What were your first favorite dinosaur movies?
2: Oh, I remember, um, I want to say it's like a 1960 movie or 1960s movie just called Dinosaur. and
1: Not Dinosaurus? Dinos, no, just okay. Dinosaur. It's yeah.
2: um, where uh, a, a dinosaur is taken out of um, deep freeze and, and basically unleashed. And my uncle showed this to me when I was really, really little. And um, I think it was the combination of seeing a dinosaur interacting with modern day humans that struck my imagination and later when i was about 12 or 13 when um uh spielberg's the lost world came out and seeing that third act where a dinosaur the t-rex is running amok around san diego that just ignited like a fire inside me where it was like oh i get to see a dinosaur Destroy like a cityscape. That yeah. was just incredible, and I think you know the. There are also all of the, the different references that you had mentioned before of like watching King Kong, like the 1933 King yeah. Kong. Yeah. That struck me at such a young age of what you could do in a movie, even though I was watching it at a time far removed from uh, the the techniques of stop motion. We were already moving into like CGI at that point it still felt like it was magic.
3: It was still fun. I mean, I remember, too, like King Kong and the original The Lost World and right. seeing the dinosaur effects. The original
1: 1925 yeah. or the 1960s? The
3: 1925. Yeah. Um, and the Willis O'Brien. Yes. yes. And, and, and it, as a kid and even as, like, a teenager, those movies... I didn't watch them and go, "Oh, this isn't." These dinosaurs look ridiculous. Like yeah. it's not CGI. So you actually yeah. you, you watch it and you're like, "Wow, I, dinosaurs! I love di- dinosaurs. Are so amazing!" And wow, what? Like, how did they bring these to life? Even though it, you know the the um, techniques and the effects were antiquated, there was still, a, as you said, Scott. There's still mm-hmm. a magic about it. Mm-hmm. Um, these larger than life creatures that somehow incomprehensibly used to walk on the same earth that we're all on and, and watching them executed in a film and be scary and majestic and there's nothing better. And, and, and honestly, that's when we started thinking about 65, our, our whole pitch to the studios was basically... Why are you guys letting Steven Spielberg have all the fun? We're just gonna stop <laughs> making dinosaur movies now that Jurassic Park dropped the gauntlet. Like, come on! Like, there used to there's a whole history of dinosaur. It used to be a subgenre. Um, and you
1: got an outer space dinosaur movie. <laughs> <That's> exactly. <right. laughs> yeah, it
2: felt um, like my my uncle Dwayne uh, for for Christmas when I was a little kid, like five or six, he would unleash all these VHS tapes that were ostensibly. B movies and and there was a lot of like Godzilla movies and like Rodan and just watching all these creature features it felt unfair to a certain degree that that entire genre had gone missing as far as we were concerned and 65 was that sticky idea that I feel like has stuck around since we were um, kids watching these movies for the first time or seeing Jurassic Park when we were I think like eight years old And it just felt like the right opportunity to try and take the wild dive into this script and see what we could cook up.
1: Well, what was the pitch?
2: The The pitch was like once we were at the like refining the pitch, we had already written the script. But we were like, what if we transport the audiences back 65 million years ago? It's not about taking dinosaur DNA and putting it modern day. It's like you actually get to transport audiences back to Pangean Earth. And yeah, then, and you know. and
3: and when we developed it, um, Sam Raimi had read the script, came on board, wanted to produce the movie, and and he's and this as a great mentor would, he's like, fellas, um, I love this movie, I th- think this is a great script, um, but we have to convince the studios to make this movie because it's a very big budget, and you've only done an independent film. So what I'd like to do is commission some artwork. And so Sam paid for some some artwork for us to put together the, our vision of the movie, basically. Great. And so we would go into um, all the different boardrooms uh, when we had the script, and we would pitch a movie, and we started pitching it almost like we were pitching... Like Ridley Scott's Alien, we we're like pitching a, a story about a pilot who's traversing across the Gulf of Space, he which is what bunch, it looks like. Which, for which the is what it looks like. The movie. Exactly. I mean,
1: there was a degree
2: yep. at which we kind of were leaning into this is boring. You've seen this movie before because <laughs> once Mills crash lands on a mysterious planet and he thinks there's something alien out there, that's when we would land the reveal in the like boardrooms where we flipped around a poster. We're like he didn't land on a mysterious planet. He landed on earth 65 right. million years ago. And we have this poster that said 65 million years ago, someone came to earth with a giant T-Rex with a, a, a smoke trail of a ship crash landing on earth. And
1: fortunately and... the technology of Colmira is very similar to modern yes. day <laughs> earth technology. Exactly.
2: <laughs> so we, we, we had fun with that, that reveal and that re- reveal does exist in the movie in, in the hopes that like 20 years from now, if there's some kid that's, chooses to watch a movie called 65 and never saw any of the marketing material, he might start watching Adam driver crash land on a mysterious planet. And then that reveal comes up and hopefully that becomes a a moment for him.
1: And now that's not going to be much of a surprise because of the marketing. Yeah. You have to let let people know what they're in for, for them to pay for it.
3: Yeah. We're in a, you know, weird time with theaters, right? There's nothing more important to us um, than the theatrical experience. Scott yeah. and I are actually opening a movie theater this fall in our really? hometown. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, it's called The Last Picture House. It's going to wow. screen 35 millimeter um, film prints. We're going to beg you to come back and screen some I'll of your be work. There. Yeah. and but Just like um,
1: Quentin did with The New Bedroom. Yeah, totally. Yes. That's yeah.
3: exactly right. And, and our community where we grew up, they love movies there and, and wow. we think that there's an audience for it. But... Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a it's a trying time for non IP original films in the yeah. theatrical marketplace. And um, while it would have been fun to kind of hide the secret of sixty five completely, we also kind of understood why Sony wanted to to put it out there and and draw people in with the dinosaur. And
1: it certainly doesn't ruin anything. Mm-hmm. You know, if anything, it piques people's interest. Sure. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah.
1: So tell me about the difference in approach. This was probably not even remotely like making haunt mm-hmm. not even the same job being no. directors so you're working on stages the spaceship sets i assume were actual sets yes yeah. but most everything else you're in front of a green screen actors in front of a green screen uh, with uh with c stands with green <laughs> tennis uh-huh. balls on the end to for their points of view and the like. yeah so tell me about what a big 360-degree turn that is sure. from making a movie like Haunt.
2: I mean, it it was massive. There was this period even before we started prep where it was like an R&D phase where we, we always storyboard every single frame of our movie but never was it more important to figure out how are we going to show the dinosaurs? When do we not show the dinosaurs? What's the visual effects cost implication of showing too many dinosaurs? And it was all this homework that had to be done to figure out what the actual cost of the movie was. Um, then it was about designing the dinosaurs with our visual effects supervisors and any practical effects that we could we could afford to have, and then it was about um, versus like Haunt, which we shot entirely in this contained haunted house that we built on in a milk factory in 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 outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. We actually decided let's film as much on location as we can in Louisiana and in Oregon, and that process was was built out of um research with paleontologists and researchers that were figuring out what the um ecology was in in the united states back Mm. then 65 million years ago we had written this um uh, kind of as the anti-jurassic park because we didn't want to necessarily do like a tropical jungle we want to do the pacific northwest and what it actually seemed like in the late cretaceous period and the research um came back and it, it was basically telling us the, t- the temperate climate was was very different back then. It was more like the swamps of Louisiana, oh, which drove us yeah. to shooting actually in swamps. And so wow. I, one of the most magical days on set was—it um, was like 10 days into photography. And I remember walking out on the spaceship that our construction team and production designer actually built— in this swampland, oh. and had m- mounted it so that it wouldn't sink, but <laughs> that it looked like it was completely decimated. And we had fires being lit up, and we had techno cranes, and and just to see the collaborative artistry all come together in that one set was absolutely breathtaking. And and we had to pinch ourselves because never in a million years did we think like we would be able to shoot this movie in the wake of haunt. And and it was a world away in terms of the amount of homework it took to get there, you
3: know, and, and it was a really tough movie. All shoots are difficult and challenging. This was a particularly tough challenge. It was a 40 day shoot with um, a lot of visual effects. Mm -hmm. No second unit, no second unit, (laughs) six day weeks. I mean, we were exhausted. We started, with like, why does Steven Spielberg get to have all the fun? And ended with like, it's not that fun. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's hard to do. Hey, that even is.
1: Critters Two was a forty day shoot. Oh <laughs> wow
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it was just, you know, it was um it was it was challenging, but it was rewarding work. We we're working with a kind of big canvas maximalist giant dinosaurs, but we also were attempting to do, and I don't know if we pull it off, but we were attempting to do kind of an intimate character story that really doesn't rely on dialogue and it's very kind of nonverbal. And um, we talked about 65 as kind of like a, another attempt, like a quiet place to do a modern day silent film. Cause we're mm-hmm. just really, we just really love that period of of film and we love the, we love the the romantic idea of how silent films could kind of play anywhere globally in different countries, and there was no barrier to language, that cinema was a universal language that kind of unites everybody. Well, the
1: mm-hmm. tools of cinema go beyond language, mm-hmm. and it's what separates it from theater.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what we find so beautiful, because you can access so many different ways to convey emotion, whether that's through like a color that you're using in the production design or some sort of sound effect that sparks your imagination. Um, it's, it, for us, it's always like about what you don't see, you know, right. that is really the most terrifying when you're working in the genre
1: so how do you work as co-directors does somebody specialize in working with the actors and somebody else with visuals Mm -hmm. or do you divide that up
2: yeah it's really interchangeable um in in that we're always doing our our homework you know while we're in pre-production we're storyboarding everything figuring out like what's the purpose of a certain scene so that when we get to rehearsals or get to set that there are really no questions that are going to be left unanswered, at least between the two of us,
1: because you guys are going to be getting a hundred yes. questions a day.
2: Absolutely, and there's a lot of trust too. Like uh, on rare occasions, will you know a question arise, and like I may be slightly uncertain, but Brian feels a little more certain, and and he'll give that answer, and and I'll trust that. Um, but I would say for the most part, like we're sitting at, you know, video village and we'll, we'll watch a scene. We'll quickly whisper a few different, you know, ideas for, okay, for take two, let's try this. And it could be either one of us or maybe both of us that goes up and talks to the actor. And then the next take, it might be the other person, but it's always having this quick conference and, and make sure that, that we're always communicating like a singular vision, which is really important to us.
1: Well, you're also doing your first movie star movie. You got Adam Driver here, and you know that had to be also a very different experience than doing an indie.
3: Adam Driver's one of our favorite actors of all time. Yeah. Um, he's been doing tremendous work movie after movie uh it's very intimidating uh to work with him because we're such fans of his his body of work there's a day on on set where uh scott and i made the decision we were like all right we're gonna get a bunch of cirque du soleil performers dress them up in these giant dinosaur suits and put them in the deep background so the actors have something to react to and so we, we and we made it a big deal with our like line producer We're like we have to have the circus you know slush fund for the raptor suits it was like this huge thing. So they finally show up and we're standing outside of a sound stage and we're getting ready to film and there's like six people in raptor suits. Some of them are eating like, you know, drinking coffee in the raptor. <laughs> it was just like comical, and Scott and I looked at each other like, oh no, this is gonna be the day Adam is like, what am I doing? <laughs> uh working with you guys. And um and so Adam comes out, we place the raptors in the background, and he comes up to us and we're like, Here it comes. He's going to be, he's going to think this is absurd. And he, he looks at the Raptors points at him and he's like, I love this. Like, I love that there's something real on set to react to like, and, 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 and that was like a a big moment for us as first time studio directors working with a movie star because you're always afraid that, um, they've worked with so many tremendous directors that you're not going to be delivering the goods for them.
1: So, what was the most challenging scene in the movie? Mm. Filled with challenging scenes.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: yeah, it, it, it did feel like every day we're on a new location. There's there's new terrain. I think there's there's a scene. Um, it's sometimes like the emotional scenes because if there was dialogue there, we kept questioning <laughs> ourselves. And I think like Adam, we were all having this like conference of is less more. Like, do we need to strip more dialogue out of there? If we strip the dialogue out of there, like, how heightened do we play the performance to make sure we communicate it? Because I think between the two of us and also with Adam, subtlety was always key. We didn't want to push sentiment too hard or, mm. or really push the themes too hard. And so it was about always getting more dif- more options than we probably needed, but making sure we were policing ourselves so that we didn't commit something awful to film that then could backfire (laughs) and then it gets put in the final final version of it. Um, I'm trying to think of like one scene in particular. Do you have,
3: no, it was just a, it was just a, um, it was a, it was a challenging food. I don't know what else to say. It was a big budget movie that we had to cut a lot of money out of. And we would, we were constantly making script revisions Mm -hmm. and, and just being in the studio process a little bit more uh, for the first time was... Was, so f- was
1: you found them having a lot of input.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and sometimes in a great way and sometimes in a challenging way, you know, yeah. to, to think quick and, and try to... React to the pivoting um, opinions of of a large corporation that's that's making a larger movie. It was a, it was you know it was a learning process. It was it was exciting and thrilling and exhausting.
1: And you're spending their money. Uh, yeah. Tr- yeah. very true. Yeah, yeah. I and mean,
3: there's a degree at
2: which you have to acknowledge mm-hmm. you're spending their money, so there you you can't just go off and like when we were kids and do whatever we want. There's that balance of the the politics and the
1: diplomacy too. So, right, which yeah. is a huge part of being a director. Yeah, and not just dealing with the studio, but with cast and crew as well. Yeah, so tell me how you went about crewing, and particularly Mm -hmm. the VFX people, the the DP, the sound design.
3: We worked with some really. Really remarkable people on this film. The first person that comes to mind is the costume designer Michael Kaplan, who uh, started his career with Blade Runner and <laughs> nice did... beginning <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. and then just went and did went on from there. Did a lot of um, David Fincher movies, did the uh, recent Star Wars films and Star Trek, and seen, using his creativity to kind of create um, what we kept calling it's like an ancient alien civilization. It's like retro and futuristic simultaneously, which was a hard bullseye to hit in um, our production designer kevin ishioka who we admired his design work from uh tron and oblivion he's done mm-hmm. some really beautiful sci-fi kind of cutting-edge stuff and 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 having his um taste and style imprinted on the movie was really yeah. really exciting for us and
2: our, our visual effects supervisor uh chris harvey he he was somebody that we admired from his work with neil blomkamp who oh, had a great yeah. way of like combining reality with visual effects And Chris had had, uh, spearheaded um, Neil Blomkamp's Oats Studios that was churning out some really incredible short films. Yeah,
1: we had Neil on talking about Oats and everything. Oh, fantastic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, like, we we just love that sense, that sensibility, and what Chris lent to everything that he works on is the idea of um, storytelling and not just visual effects. And and how do you tell the best story possible? Like if Chris could just go off and make his own movie as a director, I think he'd be incredibly successful, yeah. even if it was void of, of visual effects. And the the other key collaborator um, was Sal Tatino, our cinematographer, who has shot tons of films with, with Ron Howard from Cinderella Man to um, Frost Nixon, like intimate yeah. character dramas. But then he's also um done physical jobs like everest where they actually Uh, shot part of that on everest right and yet this seemed like a bit of a departure for sal um because we we wanted to approach with a bit of a, a controlled thoughtful um style where we're storyboarding again like every single frame and we always were wondering, like, before we brought Sal on board, we're like, is he going to want to do that? Or does he kind of beat to his own drum?
1: And there was so much technology involved.
2: Absolutely. And and the good news is he was like a kid in a candy store oh. where he was so excited to chase this style of filmmaking. He started inventing um, new equipment devices that that we could use there's there's one shot where we wanted like a full 360 that's loaded the ground and we couldn't we didn't want to use a steady cam because we wanted it to be really controlled we wanted it to be at like a singular pace and it couldn't be like a crane because that would be in its own way and it was a tight set and so he worked with um, his camera equipment team and they devised this entire new system that we used for a track. And so it was just really incredible to see him get inspired. And then in turn, like that inspired us to concoct even crazier ideas throughout the course of (laughs) of pre-production.
1: What do you think the uh, appeal of dinosaurs is? Every kid Mm -hmm. loves dinosaurs, especially little boys, but not just little boys.
2: I think it's the idea that... Dinosaurs seem like they were created simply for movies, but the reality <laughs> is they existed here on Earth. They were real. <laughs> that was an, it's an incredible thought to think somewhere here in the San Fernando Valley there might have been T Rexes uh, uh, roaming, you know, along Ventura Boulevard. And it's it's so wild as a child to see like a Godzilla movie, but then you see a T Rex movie. And Godzilla is invented, but a T Rex is not. That's invented. the real thing. It's yeah. absolutely extraordinary.
1: So Brian, what were the movies that you watched for inspiration during the prep?
3: We watched, um, we screened Alien for the cast um, for Driver and and um, and the young actress uh, Ariana Greenblatt who plays KoA in the movie. We screened mm-hmm. Alien just just to set a tone for what, what great performances that are um, terrified of, of a creature studied a lot of creature features. Some of the movies that you might not expect for this film, we, we, we watched gravity. We, we really mm. love these kind of point A to point B movies that are simple or appear simple, deceptively simple. Um, character stories that are about action and these kind of setting up these dominoes Mm -hmm. and, and watching them all fall throughout the movie as things get worse and worse for our heroes. So Uh, both versions of true grit also. Yeah. Both versions of true grit, um, apocalyptic, the the young girl. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, That's Mm -hmm. right. I mean, paper moon, if we want to get, yeah, yeah.
1: That's a great one one too. Yeah. Yeah.
2: We were, we were trying to balance, I mean, the whole movie is, is an exercise in, um, in delivering the b-movie premise but also embracing like the character journey and the idea of the undercurrent of like suffering loss and suffering grief so it was always like a venn diagram of of those like a character movie but something that's steeped in in genre
1: well you talked about because of budgetary issues having to trim things were there any scenes that had to hit the floor before they were shot that were really painful
3: all of them, anything, but I mean, that's, that's the nature of Scott and I, everything's painful. Uh, right. it's, a, it's a, it's a tough business for very sensitive people. <laughs> <And unfortunately, laughs> yeah, sure. Sometimes I wonder if we're in the right, uh, right career, but, um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, we uh, absolutely, there are things on the, on the cutting room floor, both as screenwriters and as filmmakers, but that is filmmaking, right? It's, it's adapting to what the resources you have, um, the, you adapt to the weather that you get on the day. And, and we admire filmmakers who are able to kind of navigate that as if it's, as if it's easy, uh, there, you know, for us, it's, it's always, um, it's always a challenge, but you, yeah, you 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 watch Martin Scorsese, and it, it seems like he is undaunted by anything, even studio interference. Uh, you hear him talk about on some of his movies, and and it's like, oh, that masterpiece was interfered with because it right. seems they're great. telling
1: Martin <laughs> Scorsese what <laughs> to Earth do. Joe, yeah. Of course, well, that's always uh, <laughs>
3: uh, unacceptable. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah.
1: So tell me about your anticipation for opening day. Um, <laughs> you know, this is your first big studio movie wide 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 release yeah uh a lot of advertising and you know as we're recording this the film has not yet come out right so what are your plans for opening day
2: turn the phone off and uh focus on the future like i i always (laughs) think about like spielberg and and lucas like escaping going to hawaii (laughs) going to hawaii (laughs) and and that sounds really really nice um you know what? What we do, what we've done, um, we did this with Haunt and with A Quiet Place, is we go back um, to Iowa, and we go back to Iowa in part because that's where we feel most grounded. Um, I, I live there much, much of the time, mm. and we we just have such a great community. So we're doing like three screenings back in Iowa, and wow. I think that I'm looking forward to most because we get to see so many familiar faces, people that we started making movies with when we were kids. Um, but I, I don't know, like, I, again, we're, we're the type of filmmakers where it's out of our control. And so we can we can expect for the worst. But again, like, it is out of our control. And so at this point, you just have to let the audience uh, live with the movie, whether they, they love it, whether they hate it, and just be focused on what we can do next. And so we... we I don't do, know. We're, we're always terrified, I think.
3: So, <laughs> do you show up and watch your movies in theaters? Is that a, is that a big moment for you? Is that a big opportunity? Absolutely,
1: it, especially yeah. genre movies where you can really read an audience. Yeah. You know, they're verbal. Comedies and horror movies go for a, a visceral and observable response. Yeah, absolutely. And to like opening night at the Chinese Theater w- with Sleepwalkers. Yeah. 1200 people in there and, and oh, when man. Mother and Son kiss hearing yeah. them all go <laughs> at the same time <laughs> oh is one gosh, of the most yeah. memorable nights of my yeah, life.
3: Uh, that's incredible.
1: But I'm so excited for you and and wish you all the best. It was so great to have you back and we'll do it next time. Oh,
2: thank you so much, Mick. So <laughs> thanks fantastic. Scott, thanks yeah, Brian. Thank it's you, really
1: Mick. good to see you and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank, thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with
2: Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price, our announcer is Jeff Gelb, our graphic designer is John Holland, and our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.